All right, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We ask that you would help us. Uh, we know that some of the things we have to look at are perhaps new to us, are new to some, and some of these things can be a little intimidating or technical. We just pray that you would give us grace to have understanding, give me grace to be clear. And I pray that this would be a help, a practical help, a meaningful help to our study of your word. We want to better know and understand you and what you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we were looking at the contextual principle of hermeneutics. And we said there were two approaches to discerning a word's meaning, two basic approaches. The first was exploring a word's origin, and we can do that by way of looking at its development over time. And we can also do that by way of breaking down the word into its constituent parts. But there's limitations to that, we said, because when you look at a word's development over time, you have to acknowledge that words change meaning over time. Now, that doesn't mean what the original author said. His words, in the context in which he said it, changes meaning. What he said is what he said, and what he meant is what he meant and will always mean. Okay, Meaning is objective. It is defined by the authorial intent. However, when we try to interpret the meaning of what that author said, we recognize that we use words differently. And so, just for instance, consider the word gay, okay? Uh, does that word, has that word undergone any sort of change in meaning? Yes. So if you look at what people said or how they used that word 100 or so years ago, you might run into some confusion. But you need to respect what they meant by the word. So words do change meaning over time. The other limitation to exploring a word's meaning in terms of its origin is that when you try to break down a word into its constituent parts, we have to acknowledge that the word's components, it, its, its root, its prefixes and all that, doesn't necessarily have to do or give us the meaning of the word. Just think of the word butterfly. Okay, a butterfly, this little insect, the wings. Butter and fly. You're, you're going to uh, realize very quickly that a lot of words we try to break down, metaneo was a biblical word I gave you from the Greek, means repentance. It doesn't literally just mean change of mind. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. So there's limitations to exploring a word's meaning in terms of its origin. And the best way then to explore a word's meaning is to explore its usage. This would have to do with its context. We do that by looking at the context. We should say the context really has the last say. Usage has the last say. Etymology can be helpful, but context has the last say. And we can examine a word's usage by observing the four following procedures. So this is how to do a basic word study by honoring the context of a word. The first thing we want to do is we want to locate the original word. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean we want to locate the original Hebrew, if we're in the Old Testament or Aramaic, or Greek word if we're in the New Testament. And that's because the original word will get you closer to the original author. And we're trying to span that language gap that we discussed at the beginning of this course. How can we do that? How can we do that, especially if we don't have a knowledge in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek and such? Well, thankfully, you can take advantage of all kinds of word tools like concordances. Concordances will give you 
basic definitions to all the words found in whatever specific English translation of the Bible you're using. So if you're using a New American Standard, you want to get a New American Standard concordance. And if you get an exhaustive one, you can go to the word to look up the meaning, and you can look that up in your concordance, and it will give you a number that will bring you to the actual Greek or Hebrew word that the original author was using. And then you would be able to see the meaning of that word in, in that time that those original authors were using it. Oh, and by the way, Bible dictionaries too, like Vines, William Vines, complete expository dictionaries. Uh, it's a pretty simple tool uh, that a lot of people use. can be helpful for word studies. Another thing you can do, though, and I think the most efficient way that you can look up a word the quickest is by Bible software. And there's, thankfully, a lot of different Bible software available, and a lot of it's for free. A lot of it you can get, uh, like even Logos. Logos can be very expensive if you're building your library. You want a lot of neat tools, but the, the basic engine itself is free. And uh, if, if you have questions about some of these softwares or things, I'd love to talk with you about that. I, uh, I use that a lot. It saves a lot of time. And I'm just saying, you want to locate the original word to get the closest to the original author's intent. So if we went to James chapter 1, verse 13, and James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he... And he himself does not tempt anyone. What if I wanted to look up that word tempt? Well, I could just go to an English dictionary and look up the word tempt. But I want to know what word did James use? What Greek word? And so what I could do is I could use a concordance. I could use Bible software whatever. And I would find that the verb he's using here is peirazzo, uh, which is a word that sometimes means to tempt, to try to seduce, to do evil. Or more generally, it can be used to talk about just testing. Testing. And... When you study words, by the way, what you can do is you can also examine a word's cognate. What that means is if I see a word in a verb form like tempt, that's a verb. It's an action. I might also want to consider the word temptation. They share the same root. Pirazzo has a a cognate, pirasmas. That's the the noun form. Just saying, uh, locate the original word if you want to get closest to the original sense of the author. And you also want to locate the original word because what you can do then is you want to, and this is the second step of how to explore words usage in context, you want to consider that word's usage in other contexts. So you first want to locate the word and then you want to find out where else is it used. And this is again why concordance will be helpful, why a Bible dictionary or a Bible software could be helpful for you. Let's say we go to First John. 1 John chapter 2. You can go there if you like, but 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if we wanted to say, well, what exactly does John mean when he says the world? We want to locate the original word, so we would go to accordance, or we'd go to our Bible software or something, or if you had a Greek New Testament, you could even look up and see, okay, here's Here's the word. It is cosmos in the Greek. That's the original word. And then what I want to do is ask, so how does the same author use it elsewhere in the same context? How is John using it elsewhere in 1 John? And we see he uses it in other places. And then how does John use it elsewhere in other books he has written? We could go to the Gospel of John and we could see other places. And isn't that, isn't the way that 
John is using the word world, going to have priority than over, say, Paul or Luke or somebody else? Of course. Because when we're studying 1 John 2.15, and he says, do not love the world, and John is saying that, then I, I'm taking most interest, I should say, first interest, in how John himself is using that term. And then beyond that, I can explore what other biblical authors, how they use the word, or how this word is even used in extra biblical literature. There comes a time when uh, that can be helpful because some of the words that are used in the New Testament or Old Testament aren't really found much in the New Testament or Old Testament. You could have a word, for instance, like stoichia in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul is warning us not to be deceived, not to be carried away by these these principles of this world, the elementary principles of this world. And that word stoichia is very rare. It doesn't occur much in the New Testament. But one thing you can do is if you know the original word, you can locate how it was used by others during that time. Just saying, consider the word's usage in other contexts to shed light on your context. The third thing we would do, and this really has to do with uh, the second point, they're kind of these second and third points work in tandem, establish the word's range of usage. The whole point of me considering the word in other usages or in other contexts is that I want to understand what is the range of possibilities for when I'm trying to discover this word's meaning in my context. Words are like people. They can wear different hats. They can perform different functions. And you can have one word like the word cosmos, which is translated world, in, in our English Bibles, that word cosmos can be used in different ways. And if you went to a lexicon or you went to a concordance, you could find out that this word cosmos can be used as just an orderly arrangement. This is in 1 Peter 3.3 3, as an organized system or orderly adornment. Peter is talking to women. He's talking to women who are believers and they have non-believing husbands, and he's saying, hey, don't let your testimony be all about your attire, your adornment, how you decorate yourself. And this orderly system of adornment has to do with cosmetics from this word cosmos. That's one of the ways this word is used, this cosmos. Another way this word is used, we find, is to talk about the created world, talk about planet Earth. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we would find there Paul is using this term cosmos to talk about the earth, the world God has created, the physical world. We could find here in John chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, for God so loved the world, this is John speaking again, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What God so loved the world, is he talking about God loved the planet? No, he's saying God loved the inhabitants of the world. So here's another sense in which cosmos can be used. And we could find that even in James chapter 3, verse 6, that the word cosmos or world can be used in a figurative sense to describe a great quantity. The tongue is a world of iniquity. Okay, he's just using this word world in a figurative sense. Describe how enormous this evil is. Well, what about then when we come back to 1 John 2, 15? Love not the world. What we would do is we would want to consider all the range of usages and we want to plug in the different usages and see which one makes the best sense. And so fourthly, you would endeavor to choose the usage that makes the best sense of the immediate context. And so when we're looking at this 
usage of 1 John 2.15, we would see this is a whole another usage. Cosmos here, or world, is describing the morally evil system of this present world. And you can utilize reference material software to quickly see every time a word occurs and compare usages. And this is very needful to do if you want to honor the authorial intent. Not just bring your own idea or assumptions into the text. Now, with all this too, I would say, you can choose a usage that makes the best sense to you. I didn't add this as a separate point, but it really does go with the last one. And that is, you should check your idea, check your, your idea of what this word means, which is the best sense of that word, the best usage, with commentators. Check commentators. And sometimes the process of weighing each usage in light of the context can even re- result in a stalemate. You, m- you just might not be sure. You might have a word. Again, I mentioned stoichia in Colossians 2. There's a couple usages of that word that seem to make good sense. And you'll go to commentaries and you'll see commentators have a good argument for both sides. Well, thankfully, no doctrine of the faith, no major doctrine of the faith is hanging upon that kind of a disagreement, okay, or some kind of mystery there. But even then, I would say be aware that when you check commentators, I was just telling somebody this recently, that commentators have their own limitations and opinions. They have their own theology. And so it's very important that you know which commentator you're using. What does he believe? What kind of assumptions is he taking to the text? Not all commentaries are of equal weight. And there, there are such things as devotional commentaries. And then there's like exegetical commentaries, which are going to be a lot more scholarly, a lot more dependable. If you have questions about some of those resources, that's again why Kevin and I are here. We want to help you with those kind of things. But always check your, your idea of the best usage against commentaries. Men and women, again, who have given their lives to understanding the original language, and they probably have a, a head start <laughs> on us. So just to summarize then, what is the priority of context? How do we understand the priority of context? Well, context is king because words have various meanings. Words have a variety of meanings. They can wear a number of hats. They can play a bunch of different roles. And so we need the context to determine which role that word is actually performing. And then context is king because words change meaning over time. And we can give many examples of that. Even just pick up a King James Version and some of the words that are used in that 400 plus year old translation are going to be a little bit foreign to you. Because words do change their usage over time. And then thirdly, context is king. There's a priority to studying words in their context because words derive their meaning from context. When an author speaks, I know we speak with words. We use words. But every time we're using our words, we're using them in a context. We're stringing together phrases and sentences and and paragraphs and all that. And so... That is how authorial intent works. Meaning is derived from the context. We expect people to interpret us that way, in context. And then, of course, context is king because the imagination that we bring to the text of Scripture knows no boundaries. It's very subjective. You could come to the Bible, and you could have any sort of impression about it based on your past experience, based on how you're feeling, based on what somebody said to you. And so you can twist words and make them mean what you want them to mean, Our imagination has no boundaries, but context is the boundary, all right? So this is how we can 
objectively seek to arrive at the objective meaning of a text. It's very rude to jump into the middle of a conversation and just assume that you know what somebody else is saying. Isn't that true? You could take any message that's been recorded of a preacher or a politician, right? You could take a little clip of something somebody said, and if it's a 10-second clip, 5-second clip, even more than that, you could make them say just about anything you want them to say. And you could put together a patchwork collection of things they've said that they really weren't saying if you had just listened to them in context. You know what that is? That's very rude. That's very disrespectful. Like we said, that's dishonoring the authorial intent. It's actually breaking the golden rule because we don't want people to treat us that way. We don't want anybody taking our words out of context. We want to be understood for what we meant. And this then needs to be our attitude when we come to the scripture. What is the context? And so we have two basic dimensions of context we said last week. One is this grammatical or literary level of context. And then there's another layer or dimension of context, and that is the historical context. And so for the rest of our time today, we're going to spend our time considering this literary context. That means we're considering the context of a word in terms of the literature itself. Not the background details and the history and all that. And there is overlap here, by the way. But we're, we're more concerned with the words that come before and after the, the literary context of what we're studying. How can we do this? How, how can we study any text in terms of its literary context? I want to give you four steps you can follow to analyze the literary context of any passage. And the first is determine the limits of your text. Right? When, when an author says something in scripture, he's communicating a thought. We said the Bible is logical. God is logical. And so the most logical thing we can do when we want to study the context is first understand where does the author's thought begin and end? Because the Bible isn't one long run-on sentence. And some thoughts in the Bible have nothing to do with some other thoughts. I mean, they're all authored by God. It's all coherent. But people say, oh, you got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Of course you do. But before you just do that, you need to honor the original context of what passage it is you're studying. Because if you just jump to this compare Scripture with Scripture, like some guys, this is how they come up with dates for when the Lord's returning. They just start taking passages out of the Old Testament and using it to interpret what Jesus is saying in some parable or something. It's very, very bad. No, no, no. The Bible is given thought by thought, line upon line, precept upon precept. So we need to begin by saying, where's the limits of the text that I'm studying? Where does the thought begin and end? And thoughts are, are defined by their limits in terms of paragraphs. Make sense? You know what a paragraph is. A paragraph is a, is a complete thought. And so uh, consider here some examples. If you want to determine the limits of your text, you would look at the paragraph division, and several other translations. This is the first and easiest thing you could do. If you go to 1 John chapter uh, 1, and, and you just, you said, you know, I'm trying to study the book of 1 John, trying to make sense of it. You could compare the NIV, the New American Standard, the ESV, the King James, New King James, the New Living Translation, different translations, and you could see that these translators break up uh, these, the first John passage 
in very much the same ways, which is very helpful. You're going to see the first four verses are their own set of thought. This is like an introduction to the book. There's a purpose statement there and everything. And I think that's very helpful for us. Now, that's not infallible. In fact, since we're talking about 1 John, if you look at 1 John chapter 2, you'll see the first couple verses there. They seem to be separated from the last few verses in 1 John 1 because of this paragraph or, or this chapter division. But chapter divisions were inspired, were they? Chapter divisions were added centuries after God gave us the text. And they're helpful because they, they break up our reading some. But if you want to understand 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you really need to read those in light of what John has just said in, in uh, the end of 1 John 1. Just saying, you can use paragraph divisions in different translations, take advantage of that, but they're not infallible. But it is a great place to begin to determine the limits of your text. Second thing you could do is look for a change in the following. Look for a change in subject or theme. You know, when you're, you're, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 is really one general section dealing on gifts, spiritual gifts, diversity of spiritual gifts and such, and unity of gifts. And yet when Paul comes to chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, it's very clear he's honing in on love. And you see that. You see that very clearly. He just emphasizes love again and again and again. Sometimes you'll see a change in the speaker or participant. You know, when I was going through Galatians, I was taking note once how in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul's still addressing Peter, but in verse 15, now he's really going to be addressing the, the Galatians themselves. And he goes from you, addressing Peter, to we. So even this change in, in the speaker or participant is instructive. And then, and then in chapter 2, it ends, you know, he's, he's talking about we again, talking about us, to chapter 3, he goes back to you. Oh, you foolish Galatians. This kind of a change can be signaling us that here's a new thought beginning. Doesn't mean they're completely unrelated, but you're just considering paragraph division. You could look for a time, a change in time or location. Then it came to pass, things like that. Uh, the next day, the book of John, Gospel of John has a lot of examples like that. Then you can look also for a, a change in tense or mood of even the verb. Uh, an example of that, by the way, would be in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3, what is it? It's a lot of uh, information, theological information, instruction. You know, this, this, know this, know this, know this, know this. And also you get to chapter 4 and onward to the end of the book, and it's all do this, do this, do this, do this. There's a change in mood. That's where all the imperatives really are, is in the latter half of Ephesians. So that would signal something major is happening. Another thing we could do to determine the limits of our text is to look for transitional words or phrases, like... The words finally, or it came to pass, or therefore. What about in Romans chapter 12? It's a very important transitional word. Therefore, I beg you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Uh, and the last thing you might do is look for an inclusio. And I'm not, this is a little bit more rare, but there are examples. It just would be literary bookends. I was seeing one of these in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5, where Paul is... Uh, begins by talking about how he, he, there's this great struggle he has because he's not personally seen the Colossians w along with other Christians in the face. He's not seen them face to face. And then verse 5, 
he talks about even though I'm absent in body, I'm, I'm not with you in the body, but I'm with you in the spirit. And there's kind of a bookended thought in the first five verses. Verse six begins a new thought. And that's really where the, the main message of the book begins. Just saying there's different ways to determine the limits of your text. That's the first thing you want to do. The second thing you want to do when you're studying a text in terms of its literary context is you want to determine the main idea of your text. And this is really the bullseye. This is probably the most important part of analyzing the context. You can, you can usually discover an author's main idea in any paragraph and, and trace his main thought in terms of, first of all, there's several ways. One way is check the beginning and end of the paragraph. That's a good, good thing to do. I gave you the example from Proverbs 8, again, where Colts will say that Proverbs 8, 22 and onward, you know, here is talking about Jesus being created by God because he was in the beginning. Uh, God created him and brought him forth in the beginning. And, but if you go simply to the beginning of the thought in Proverbs 8, 1, it reads, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? <laughs> First of all, Jesus isn't a woman. And secondly, Solomon is using personification to talk about wisdom. So you would know that from just looking at the beginning of that paragraph. Another thing you can do is look for repeated words, synonyms. Those are words with similar meaning or phrases. In Hebrews chapter 11, you just start reading Hebrews chapter 11 and you see the word by or the phrase really by faith, by faith, by faith. You see this passage, the main thought is about faith. So some of those are the easiest, where a word is repeated a lot, or you have even a, a word with different synonyms used. Colossians 2, again, is a great example of this, because in verses 6 to 15, you have this phrase, in him, in him, in him, in him, repeated. And uh, it, it's, of course, showing us the main thought is that we can only continue in the Christian life in Christ. That's where it is. Not in legalism, not in new moons, and uh, feasts and new diets and all this stuff that, and, and worshiping angels. You could see the things going on in chapter 2 with the Colossians were mixed up in, but Paul says, hey, it's in Jesus. The main thought there is easy because of how often that phrase is repeated. Another thing you could do, sort of similar, but a little bit different, is look for keywords, any keywords or phrases, and they would be key here in a grammatical sense. In other words, the grammar of that paragraph of that sentence, whatever you're examining, would suggest to you what is key, what is most important. And this is, again, something then we'll explore more when we get to the grammatical principle next. But let me give you an example. Consider 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Here's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, in the Greek, this is actually a lot more plain because there's a verb and then there's like an adverb. It's kind of like the, the formula, the structure there. But even in the, if you're looking at this just in an English translation, you could see there's three commands given in these verses and each is modified by a word that functions as an adverb. An adverb is simply a word that would modify an action. It would tell you how something is being done, how something is to be done in this case. And we are to follow through with these commands always, without ceasing, in everything. From these grammatical clues, you could say, well, the idea here is consistency, always. 
live in God's will consistently. So the main idea of these verses is be consistent in God's will. There's a, there's a key theme, a key idea in the text that's apparent when you consider the grammar. You say, Pastor, some of this is technical. That's okay. I don't want you to be discouraged. We said hermeneutics is an art and a science. It is the art and science of Bible interpretation. This is some of the science of it. I'm telling you, there's, there are some principles that we can follow, we must follow, but it's an art. You have to practice it. It takes time. Don't, don't be discouraged because some of the material is new to you or thinking, I, I just don't know how to do this. Um, I will tell you, because we are going to go into the grammatical principle next, that it's very important that you understand grammar. If you are a Christian who believes in propositional revelation, uh, you really do need to take grammar seriously. You say, I hate grammar. There's a lot of medicine we don't like, but it's good for us, right? Okay, so to get now also the main idea of the text, determine the main idea of the text, another thing you could do is consider the historical context. And I said there's overlap between studying the literary context of a passage and its historical context. There's really just two dimensions of the same passage we're trying to study. And there's an intersection there, and, and sometimes the historical context can help us understand the literary sense, the literary context of a word. I would think about Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> Few passages are as, as frequently taken out of context as Paul's statement here in Philippians 4.13. But if you understand the historical context of what Paul's saying, that will tremendously help you know how to interpret that encouragement, that promise. Paul is in, and a lot of this historical information, it's taken right there, by the way, from that epistle. Paul's in prison. He's imprisoned in Rome. And he goes on to talk about how uh, he knows how to be content with much or little. Paul says, my happiness is not contingent upon things, but I rejoice in the Lord. Oh, that's Philippians 4.4. 4. I, I rejoice in the Lord always. That's the joy we have. And he's saying, I can do whatever Christ has called me to do, whether Christ has called you for his sake to be in prison or to be out of prison, to have little or much, whatever Christ has called you to do, you could do it. Christ will strengthen you to do it. He's not talking about bench pressing 4,000 pounds or succeeding as an Olympian athlete or something like that. Uh, no. All right. But you have to read these things in context. So the main idea of your text can be also you can also be clued by that from considering some of the historical context. I have other examples. Just trying to move on here, keep us moving. A third thing we can do to try to understand any text in light of its context is to explore any unclear words in your text. So let me summarize everything we've looked at to this point as far as analyzing the literary context. I come to a passage in the Bible. I want to respect the authorial intent. What does that mean? I want to respect what the original author intended by the words he chose. The words that, can I say, God divinely chose and inspired him to write. Okay, that's important to me. So to do that, I'm going to use the context. And as I look at the context, say, how can I analyze the context? Well, the first thing I want to do to respect the author is I want to try to determine the limits of my text. Where does the text really begin and end? Where's the author's thought begin and end? And I also want to determine the main idea of my text. As I have a paragraph here now, 
I've established the beginning and end of my text. I want to determine what is the main thought within the limits of that text. And then I want to explore any unclear words in the text. So often I'll do this too. If I'm just going through a passage, first thing I like to do is translate it, actually. But go through it and I'll, I'll circle, I'll highlight words that I feel are going to be problem words, for lack of a better term. They are words that would be loaded theologically, that would be controversial, that would raise questions, or that at face value may not be apparent. So you, you want to locate these unclear words, explore them some more. And there's different ways we can do this. I don't think I have to tell you what unclear words are. I think they're all over your Bibles. You read your Bible all the time. You're going to find words. You're like, what does that mean, right? But how do you explore those unclear words. Well, let me give you some things you can do. Some of these are just so obvious, and again, this is just intuitive, but we ask these questions. Is a word, first of all, or phrase that's unclear to me, is it explained immediately after it's used? Does the text itself explicitly define the word that I'm thinking to be unclear here? So let me give you an example. Revelation 20, chapter 2. We read, And he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So, and he laid hold of the dragon. We can think, whoa, what, what is this? Who is the dragon, right? Well, the text goes on to say, it's the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So, I think that's easy enough, because the text itself offers us an explicit, explicit definition. But, there are other ways we might do this. Maybe some are somewhat less obvious, but is a word or phrase restated? any simpler way. Sometimes, because the, this is the author's main thought in a passage, maybe he restates that thought, or maybe he takes something he says and restates it in a similar way. We see a lot of this in Proverbs, by the way, with synonymous parallelism. I put some of these up here just to save us time flipping around. Consider Genesis 48. Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16. Jacob speaking. He's at the end of his life, and he makes this most remarkable statement. He says, The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, and then he goes on to talk about how this Lord has blessed him and preserved him and all that. Well, we know who the God is who has been Jacob's shepherd, who this Elohim is. It's Yahweh. It's the God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. That's the God he's talking about. Okay, well, that's plain enough. No question there. But verse 16, this is where you have to think about this. The angel? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The, the fascinating thing about this is that verse 15 and 16 here are related to each other in such a way that they, they are oppositional to one another. They are restatements of each other. This is very common in Proverbs. It's very common in Hebrew poetry where the author will say something and then he will restate the same thing in another way. And so here he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, who is, you could read this, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now this is remarkable. Who is this angel? Right, well you would know from, yeah, now we're applying some of the other contextual principle, but we could go back to, Genesis, uh, Genesis, what is it, 32, 34? Jacob's at Penuel, and he sees this, uh, there's this man who's wrestling with him. 
And as he's wrestling with this angelic being, at the end of that, Jacob's saying, bless me, bless me. But at the end of that, Jacob makes the statement, this place will be called Penuel because I have seen the face of God. So Jacob is identifying the angel as God there. Here, the angelic being, he's telling you, this God who has been his shepherd is the angel. The angel who's redeeming from all evil. The angel Jacob wrestled with is God. It's Yahweh. It's Elohim. I'm just telling you. It's just, if you understand the Trinity, you understand God the Father, God the Son, and all that. As a Christian, this is exciting stuff. But, you know, if I'm reading that text again, I see the angel. I'm thinking, what is that? Who is the angel? Well, it's restatement of what he's just said before. This is the God who's been my shepherd all, the, all my day. And then you could, of course, compare some of the greater context and see that. Another thing you could ask if you're trying to explore unclear words in your text is, is the meaning clarified by the presence of its opposite meaning? Might sound a little weird again, but uh, sometimes we can understand what an author intends because he shows us what he doesn't mean. Or an antithetical idea, uh, a contrast. Uh, let me give you an example here from Psalm. Psalm chapter 1, we were just in Psalm 1 a few weeks ago. Verse 6, David says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Come on, David, tell me something I don't know. God knows everything. Of course he knows the way of the righteous. Doesn't he know the way of the wicked? God is omniscient. He knows all things. Well, the next phrase, the contrast there, and it's really that conjunction, but, but the way of the wicked will perish, indicates or suggests to you that it's, it's shedding light on what David means by the Lord knows. In Exodus, what is it, Exodus 33, Moses is saying, oh Lord, don't, uh, don't send us up into the land of promise unless you go with us. We need you to go with us. We need your presence. I thought God was omnipresent. What's going on here? Yes, God's omnipresent, but there's a sense in which he's not present, and there's a sense in which he is, and the sense there is his blessing. Here, God is omniscient, of course, but there's a sense in which God knows the way of the righteous that he does not know the way of the wicked. And what is that? God knows the way of the righteous in the sense that that's the path he treads. That's the path God walks. You walk with God, you want to be with him, that's the path he knows. God doesn't know the path of the wicked in a sense. God isn't wicked. God doesn't go that way. So I think we could say the sense in which David is saying the Lord knows is evident as we consider the opposite, the antithetical line that comes afterward. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish because it's the way that God doesn't go. They're deviating from God. Another, another question we could ask to explore any unclear words in our text, is can the meaning be inferred from any clues before, after, or within the sentence in which it is used? Now, this is the big one, of course. I already said a lot of this is intuitive, but we're trying to use inference to determine from the context what a word means. And this is warranted. You can use logic to interpret the Bible because God is the author of logic. And he gave us a logical text, a logical message and we must ask logical questions of it. And I could give you many examples. One I was thinking of is in Mark chapter 14, at the trial of Christ. You have Mark 14, verse 61 tells us, Jesus kept silent, he did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him. I have that text up there for you on the wall. 
was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now some have said, Jesus was only describing his humanity here when he says, the Son of Man. I am, and I am the Son of Man, and you will see me as the Son of Man coming. Okay. Is that really what the context suggests? By inference, if we were to just simply consider this context logically, one of the, one of the things we would want to consider is the reaction in verse 63 of the religious rulers. They immediately tear their clothes and they say, we don't need to go on with the trial anymore. He has just blasphemed. What? I thought he just said he's a human being. That's what the term son of man means. Clearly, it doesn't mean that. At least we could say this. Clearly, it didn't mean that to the Jewish religious leaders in that time. And by the way, their idea of what son of man means is probably a lot more accurate than what some American in a cult somewhere in the 21st century means by it. Right? Authorial intent. Let's, let's cross the language yet. So we're looking at that. And another thing we could do, some will say, well, they were just misunderstanding Jesus here. Well, look at what Jesus says. He says, you will see me as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Power is a euphemism for God. And he says, and coming with the clouds of heaven. All you would have to do is <laughs> do some contextual study and you realize that what Jesus is describing here comes directly from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where he's not describing just any son of man. The title is very specific. The title was very Jewish. The title was related to this one who is coming to the ancient of days and is receiving all power and glory from him. And I, I could say more there, but I'm just saying we want to use inference as well when seeking to explore unclear words in the text. The last thing we could do after we've determined the limits of our text, we determine the main thought of our text, and we've explored any unclear words in our text, is we would finally want to consider all levels, consider all levels of the literary context. This kind of brings us back to that camera lens analogy. As you're zooming in, looking at a word, a phrase, a statement, sometimes we get this tunnel vision. And this is, again, how people get into trouble sometimes because they just they make up their idea what that text means but you want to zoom out you want to use the background of the picture you're looking at to focus in on that word and so here we want to examine every word consider a word in the context of its phrase or sentence and consider a phrase or sentence in the context of a paragraph and consider a paragraph in the context of its book and consider a book in the context of a canon and uh, as you get farther out Really, this is having to do with our last, our fourth general principle of hermeneutics, which, which we call the theological principle. And it's called that because it has to do with comparing Scripture with Scripture, with thinking theologically, even asking questions like, the interpretation I have here might be saying this, it might be saying that, but one of these, one of these options, option B, flies in the face of a lot of other Scriptures and a lot of clear, sound theology. So that's where this would come into play. The contextual principle requires that the interpreter, uh, of course, also understand the genre in which your paragraph appears. That's where this would also play into this. Uh, we mentioned weeks ago, people coming to the Bible, coming up with flat earth theories. I mean, not like you get that from the Bible, but it's like they, they don't even consider the genre. 
of the paragraph. They've never taken thought of the fact that there's a lot of things in the Bible that are poetic. It's unfortunate. But again, we have to read the Bible. We have to respect it as literature. And, and so that's the literal principle. The contextual principle is saying, hey, we want to read what is plainly stated, figuratively or literally, however it's said. We want to interpret that in light of the context. First dimension of the context is the literary context. You're dealing with the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, all that. Next dimension of the context is the history, some of the background. So that's what we're going to focus on next week is the historical side of it. The quiz that I have for you there is the same as last week. I didn't change it just because I didn't think we'd even have time to get to it anyway. All right, let's pray.